Welcome to the world of critical care. Today's episode is on spontaneous breathing trials. Now, this falls in line with our series on taking hearts in the ICU and recovering hearts in the ICU. One of the main goals is to progress a patient to extubation. But breathing trials are not unique to that situation. It's regularly done in the ICU. Some facilities, it is very nurse-led. Some, it is RT-led. I think no matter what, it should be something that is done in unison together. I think one of the greatest detriments I've seen with breathing trials are where an RT comes by, flips the vent, they're not breathing, they flip it back and say, oh, they're not ready. And I think to myself, well, yeah, there's no coordination here. You haven't given me a warning. Or you'll see a situation where a nurse does it and a nurse just, boom, turns sedation totally off, but the patient goes crazy and they fail the trial. And though these are two extremes, I think they present the ends of the spectrum, the challenge we have with breathing trials. So today's episode, the goal is to stay around 10 minutes. I'm going to try to keep it short, but talk about the the best way I've found to have successful breathing trials. Number one question I ask myself before I do a trial is, is my patient ready to be extubated? So for me, in specifically thinking about it from a cardiovascular um, ICU standpoint, typically I'm asking, have I met my benchmarks from a post-operative standpoint? My benchmarks for me are normothermic, hemodynamically stable, my cardiac output is stable, that my patient is not showing signs of a need to be returned to the OR. If I can check these boxes off, the next thing I ask myself, am I in a place to devote 45 minutes to an hour to be in the room to coordinate and guide my breathing trial? If I have another patient, I want to delegate tasks or get those tasks done before I start a breathing trial. This is a great time, too, to update family on the care of the patient and also give them a little heads up that we're going to be doing this trial. I try to walk in good detail with family through what the trial entails. And then I usually tell family, this is a great time to go get something to eat, and I'll bring them back when the patient is off the ventilator. The other thing I ask myself before the trial are all tasks done that need to be done for this patient. Again, this is a good time to do a little housekeeping, label IV lines. Maybe you needed to do another cardiac output. Maybe you needed to draw a lab, etc. Get those tasks done before you start the trial. A trial is a great time, too, to get caught up on your charting, so don't feel a need to do a bunch of charting right before your trial. I think the trial itself presents a great opportunity to do some charting. Now, I always want to set myself up for success for trials. So for your cardiovascular ICU patients, your cardiothoracic surgery patients, I like to set myself up for the best trial I can have, which for me means I always have PRN allotted in our room or whatever facility, your facility, whatever PRN opioid you use. I also like to have, if the patient has been off pressors and they've been borderline hypertensive, I like to go ahead and have some PRN hydrolyzine in the room ready to go in case the patient trends too hypertensive. Remember, Cardiothoracic surgery patients, often surgeons want patients under 140 systolic and typically absolutely under 160 systolic. So again, we really want those pressures down. The other thing I ask myself is, have I seen signs from this patient that we might have trouble coming off sedation? 
This includes things like when you're on an abnormally large amount of sedation and the patient's been restless or awake or agitated. Does the patient easily stir and cough with stimulation? These are things that could give me an indication that maybe we might have a more challenging trial than not. You have an anxiety diagnosis. We have a PTSD background. We have a previous history of having a challenging breathing trial. These are all things that, to me, say a few things. One, this may be a great candidate for Presidex. Of course, a medication that is an alpha-2 agonist, so what it does is it does not decrease respiratory drive, but it causes some calmness on the patient, slightly sedating, and also has an adjudicant effect as an analgesic. So it can actually kind of increase the effectiveness of our pain control. Another option too for your patients is, is potentially the need for a bite block on your ET tube. That's a, that's a big concern when your patients wake up and they bite down on that ET tube. We can't get volumes. That can be a concern, something that does happen in these trials more often than not with our younger patients that maybe are a little more uh, challenging to progress off the ventilator. And so those are things we can think about. I like to get my patients in a more upright position for a trial, typically 45 degrees or more. I like to also dim the lights in the room and decrease auditory stimulation in the room. When I'm about to start my sedation wean, I do a one last look over at all of my vitals, making sure the patient really is ready to go and I haven't missed something. At this point, I typically will text on our Volt system, the RT, letting them know I'm going to start the, start the breathing trial process and that once they are actually trialing on the ventilator, I always tell the RT that I will chart that, that they are on pressure support. For me, I like to look at the vent. We do gases, blood gases, when they come out of the OR, and I'm able to know that we had a good blood gas off the current vent settings. The biggest thing I'm looking for is FiO2, what are they setting, what is their current tidal volume, and ballpark, what's their uh, minute ventilation. This is important because it helps me know targets that I'm shooting for that I want to see in the breathing trial. I will start with a 25% reduction in sedation, and I will allow at least five to 10 minutes to transpire and just slowly let that sedation wear down. I'm looking for signs of movement with my patients. So little extremity movement, maybe they start biting on the tube, moving their lips. I'm waiting for that moment where I see the patient slowly starting to wake up. As the patient slowly wakes up, I'm hoping to get them to a state of wakefulness where I'm able to have good spontaneous respirations on the ventilator, but the patient's not wide awake. Remember, with a cardiothoracic surgery patient, we don't want them suddenly waking up and coughing, compromising our hemodynamics or our sternal incision. In particular, too, you don't want them suddenly waking up and pushing on the sides of the bed. Often, too, even if it was a thoracotomy approach, when they suddenly wake up and start moving or coughing, it creates even more pain, which can create an even more difficult situation to have a good breathing trial. 
And so it's all about a smooth, slow transition from that sedated state to a wakeful state. As the patient slowly, you start seeing signs of them moving. I like to go to the ventilator and switch the patient to CPAP. Our gold standard is 40% FiO2, 5 of PEEP, 5 of pressure support. My goal is to give patients up to almost 15 seconds, which typically is about where your apnea ventilation is going to flip in. A lot of patients, it takes about 10 seconds sometimes before the respiratory drive starts kind of kicking in. If you see no spontaneous respirations, I flip them back to volume control. I give them 10 seconds, I flip them right back to CPAP. I found that that flipping from CPAP volume control back to CPAP a lot of times really helps initiate some good breaths. If I have no spontaneous respirations, I'll drop my sedation from where it's currently at, typically down another 25%, a third, give it another five minutes and repeat. Some patients, especially your chronic, your kind of like chronic kidney disease patients, your uh, some of your older patients on, on occasion, they just take time to clear the sedation and this process can take just a little bit longer. Now, let's say we've now got to a point where we're seeing some signs of spontaneous respiration. The goal for me is to see a respiration rate somewhere for me, 12 up to like 26, 28, kind of a wide band, but in there, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the rate. I'm looking for consistent volumes though. Tidal volumes tend to be the biggest challenge. A lot of patients pull low volumes initially. Sometimes it's sedation, sometimes it's pain, sometimes it's agitation. And you're trying to understand where we're at on that continuum. Often if you see signs your patient isn't quite really awake yet, all you need to do is decrease our sedation. So at that point, typically I'm gonna bring my sedation down again another 25% or a third. In the meantime, if I have a good rate, I'm just not getting the volumes that I want, a lot of times I'll increase my pressure support a little bit. I might go to eight or 10 of pressure support. That extra pressure support will increase my tidal volume so that I get a good minute ventilation. Remember, minute ventilation, of course, is, is the mils of air per breath times the rate. And so remember, you made a mental snapshot of your minute ventilation pre-breathing trial. So let's say their minute ventilation was seven. We know we had good gas exchange on a minute ventilation of seven. And so again, we're looking for something in that similar bar ballpark. Now, as the sedation comes down, we ultimately want to bring the back down that pressure support to five, which is our baseline. Once I'm at a place where my respiration rate looks good, my minute ventilation is appropriate, my tidal volumes are appropriate on five of pressure support, I have now begun my breathing trial. I chart it, I text my RT, and that begins my 30-minute breathing trial. My goal is to have the patient at the perfect intersection of wakefulness, but comfortable. So I, that's why I am, am so big on that slow stepping down of the, the sedation. As the patient wakes up, I never talk loudly. I'm very, very calm. I try to, as best I can, 
just just in a very matter of fact, soothing voice, tell them they're waking up after surgery. You have a breathing tube in. You currently are breathing on your own, but it's going to feel a little weird. And I try to tell them, you know, in the next 30 minutes, you're going to be off the ventilator. I ask them typically, are you in pain? Pain is a critical issue because if the pain is too much, patients, one, often will not take good deep breaths, and eventually it typically leads to tachypnea, which leads to a failed breathing trial. A lot of patients need just a little baby dose of Dilaudid to kind of limp them through the breathing trial. It's going to be your judgment, though, as the nurse, and this is why I am present in the room the entire trial. It's your judgment to ascertain the difference between that, are we a little agitated, like I went, I overshot my sedation wean and I went too quickly? Am I in a place where they're just really in a lot of pain or they're just too sedated? All three of these can lead to situations where we're tachypnic or we're taking low volumes. And that's why it's really important to help sift through those things. Now, as we're trialing, I like to progress the patient typically around the 15-minute mark. I take the sedation down ideally to what I call a minimal level. So for me, I try to take it to almost off around the 15-minute mark. And then if I were to have a sudden increase in wakefulness and they're coughing, compromising their hemodynamics, their sternotomy, I will just use PRN opioids at that point to help with that sedation level and the pain control because I'm really trying to progress off our IV sedation. Typically with a couple minutes to go in that 30-minute trial, I let our RT know we get a blood gas. When the blood gas is drawn, I turn sedation totally off. Now this can be the hardest part. And I always tell patients you're going to be uncomfortable for a few minutes because we need to be awake, alert. But remember, right, we also don't want to compromise that sternotomy or our hemodynamics with that immediate post-op patient. And in particular, we also want to think about things like severe hypertension. And so those are all things we really want to take care of. We want to give that great care to the patient. For us at our facility, we're going to have a provider, an APP, look at our blood gas to confirm that we're ready to take the patient off the ventilator. The biggest tip I have in this process is, one, make sure your patient is following commands. I found that patients who can move all four extremities to command, they can nod to questions, and they can control their head and neck position typically are going to be successful off the ventilator. During the extubation process, remember you're going to have to deflate the cuff on the ET tube. That's going to, of course, be removed from the patient, the ET tube. During that removal process, it's really important to do a couple of things and help your RT in this process. If you have subglottic secretions, this is a great time to go ahead and, and remove any subglottic secretions. It's also a good time before you extubate to, to suction the ET tube. This is also an opportunity to take the, the Yankauer and make sure you don't have any extra saliva in the mouth or in the back of the throat that may run down. 
when you extubate, the Yankauer is the most important thing you can have because then it's airway safety in terms of the secretions. There's a lot of patients that just had way more secretions than you could imagine, and it's really helpful. We extubate all patients to four liters nasal cannula. A lot of patients are mouth breathers when they initially are extubated. That's simply solved with an oxy mask or putting the nasal cannula in their mouth, honestly, as they start to wake up a little bit more. Remember, too, some patients, once you extubate them, they can be very, very sleepy. That's not uncommon. Sometimes they just need a little extra support for an hour. We use Airvo quite regularly in our ICU and our post-op patients just to get some extra leader flow. It can really help too with those patients that are complaining of a lot of pain and they're just, you can tell they're really struggling to take good deep breaths. Sometimes Airvo is a, is a game changer for them. You get a little bit of peep from it actually, and it just makes their, their, their breathing feel a little more comfortable. And it's good too if you got behind on your pain control. Sometimes that helps our patients take deep breaths. Because remember, post-op atelectasis is a huge issue post-operatively. And so we want our patients taking good, deep breaths. And so again, it's that whole balance, though, between not over-sedating our patients where it decreases their respiratory drive, but we also want them comfortable. That is the breathing trial. The spontaneous breathing trial, I think, is always something that is, it really depends on your unit culture, the unit you're at, how you interact with RTs. I do think I'm really a fan, though, of the slow process and being in the room the whole time. I am not, I have found very little success with the people who come in, turn sedation off, tap the patient, yell at them are you breathing? Take good breaths. Oh, they're not. And they said, well, we'll try again later. I've just found that method just doesn't work. It just, every now and then you get lucky and you have a patient that does great. The majority of patients I find do really well with that slow progressive wean and it just takes time. And that's the hard part. This process takes an hour, but I think if you do it well, you're going to have good success and you're going to be able to take great care of your patients because you can manage that sternotomy, manage the hemodynamics. You can also manage blood pressure really well with those really slow weans. And that's the thing too, on one last note about blood pressure, when you go really slow on your weans, if you've only decreased 25% on your sedation, you're already hypertensive, you gave hydralazine, you drop another 25% on sedation, they're wakeful, they're trialing, but you've had to do a second PRN dose, you you already at this point know, okay, I might be in a situation where we're going to need cardine before sedation's totally turned off. And so that's one of those things where as you go slowly through this process, you can really be thinking ahead for your patients. And that also goes to the critical importance, have your PRNs ready, think ahead, that's thinking ahead, too, of maybe this is a Presidex candidate or thinking ahead saying, mm, I know I'm going to need cardine. Let's go ahead and get cardine on board for our patients. With that, thanks for listening. This is just a very brief overview of spontaneous breathing trials, but I think it's a topic that I just remember getting trained in the ICU and not getting a lot of exposure to, and still I started doing 
post-operative hearts. And then, of course, you do breathing trials every single day, all the time. And you start to realize that you start to formulate some method to the madness and you start to see more and more success. And I found that doing this method tends to promote great breathing trials and a lot of successful extubations. With that, thanks for listening. My plan for this week is at the end of this week to release the first episode on potassium. And then the other episode that will be coming out shortly will be on temporary pacemakers continuing in the post-operative hearts series.